This episode is part two of a special three-part series entitled Fraud from the First Frontier to the Next Frontier. During this episode, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Lori Schock joins us to discuss fraud that takes place in modern times. We will discuss how con artists effectively utilize communication technology to increase their ill-gotten gains from victims. The discussion examines ways technology can be both a blessing and a curse. Hello, and welcome to Real Life Regulators, a podcast aimed at educating investors using real cases. You're currently listening to part two of a three-part series highlighting the evolution of investment fraud. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Securities Administrators Association, also known as NASA. I'm Lynn Peters, Director of Communications, Financial Education, and Outreach with the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions, and I'll be serving as one of your hosts. My co-host for this episode is Jeremy Lusheen, Program Specialist and Webmaster, also with the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions. And also joining us today to discuss investment fraud in the present is Lori Schock, Director of the Office of Investor Education and Advocacy with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Before we get into the story, Lori, let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, great. Thanks, Jeremy. And thanks for having me participate in the podcast. Uh, Since I am following the Rainmakers from Kansas back in the 1800s and bridging into the metaverse of the future, um, I I have a lot to cover here. But let me tell you a little bit about um, the work that we do at the SEC. First of all, uh, as an SEC employee, I have to give you my disclaimer that uh, the views I express here in this podcast are mine and mine alone and don't necessarily represent those of the commission, the staff, or the commissioners at the SEC. But with that said, um, I'm in a very unique position at the SEC in the Office of Investor Education and Advocacy. We actually have the pleasure of interacting with investors on a daily basis. And we do this by taking investor complaints and questions. Uh, Over the past couple of years, those numbers have gone up about 50%. We're handling around 30,000 unique questions or um, sometimes complaints or problems that people have with their investment professionals on a a regular basis. And as you might imagine, those are unique cases. Uh, No two cases are exactly alike, but uh, we have the opportunity to um, help people. We may not be changing the world, but we have certainly impacted individual investors' lives. Uh, Also, uh, we do outreach programs such as this one, Uh, you know, just talking to people, uh, hearing what's going on in their financial lives, um, what we can do to help, alerting them to frauds that we're seeing. Uh, We put out investor alerts and bulletins. And then we also maintain the commission's investor-friendly website, investor.gov. SEC.gov is the commission's main website, but it serves a lot of other business purposes. So we pulled the uh, retail investor education materials onto investor.gov. So that that's the sole purpose of that website and information there is really um, curtailed to those who are looking just for investor education materials and information. So that's a little bit of the work of what I do. Um, I was just barely into this century starting at the commission, but I've been doing this work uh, for over 20 years. So I have seen a lot and there's a lot more coming in the future as well. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, it sounds like with a 50% increase, we've got a lot coming our way. So in this 
first episode, we talked about the creation of the Blue Sky Laws that started in 1911. SEC was started in 1934. But what I understand is that your actual office was is only 88 years old. Can you, two-part question, can you tell us a little bit about the SEC and what it does? And then tell us a little bit about your office and why it's only 30 years old. Sure. Um, yeah, so let's go back in time a little bit. So the SEC is 88 years old this year. Uh, we were formed in 1934. So what was happening in our country at that time? You know, we were coming out of the Great Depression. Uh, FDR was president. Uh, Joe Kennedy was named first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. The 33 Act actually preceded the 34 Act, which is the Exchange Act that set up the SEC. So we need to have you know, the government body in charge of enforcing these rules. So the SEC was formed. Um, also during this time period, though, FDIC insurance was coming into play. So um, you had truth in lending and now sort of truth in securities. And you know, the underpinnings of the Act is, you know, we need to have securities laws that were based on, you know, sort of truth, if you will, that everybody should be treated fairly and have access to certain facts and information um, before making an investment. And also um, truth from those who are selling these investments to them. So that's sort of the underpinning for all of this. We are a disclosure based agency. So, um, you cannot omit information, and you need to, I mean, what you're saying needs to be truthful because people are making are relying on that information when making investments. And so, you know, it's part of the registration process for publicly traded companies. And I, I know for all the securities lawyers out there, there are exemptions from registration, but the majority of investments that are sold to retail investors um, need to be registered with the SEC. And then the people who sell them also need to have registration. And that may be with the state securities regulators, such as the membership of NASA, or it may be with the SEC, or in some cases it, it could actually be both. And so, you know, part of this disclosure regime, then it's, it's not worth much if you're not examining and enforcing against those rules. And so that's a big part of the work of the SECs, the examination and enforcement teams. And we're based out of Washington, D.C., but we also have 11 regional offices across the country. And so those are two of the three E's that you'll sometimes hear me talk about. Well, the third one is education. And investor education uh, was originally set up at the SEC in the mid-90s. Arthur Levitt was the chairman. And, you know, it's like, why now are we focusing on this? And part of that comes from some of the changes that were taking place in our economy. Um, there had been changes in the late 70s where 401ks were now allowed. Companies were moving from defined benefit plans, such as pension plans, into these defined contributions, such as the 401k plans that we know today are 403b plans, or the thrift savings plan for the, the government. And, and what that does is it shifts responsibility from you know, the company having to make sure that the pensioner had income for life to now where the retiree, the person who's planning for the retirement, is going to be responsible for their own retirement. And, you know, some people will say, yes, but it gives them choice and they can make their own decisions. And, and that's great. But then when we were making this shift, we did it without any education around it. 
And then we found people maybe weren't saving enough for their retirement and investing, you know, what's investing? Uh, because in the United States, uh, historically, investing was, you know, started off being for the wealthy. It was not something that uh, most of the people who were working, you know, jobs and raising families did on a regular basis. It was brand new to them. And so with this shift, then people, you know, okay, now what do I need to do? How do I prepare for this? And with that, you know, when you have money, uh, I hate to say it, but fraud follows. And there's always been fraud. You know, whenever anyone's had money, someone's tried to steal it. But now we've got people who are saving for long-term investments for, you know, something that may be decades away. And uh, how are they going to uh, make good decisions and avoid fraud in this process? And so, so I have a question for you on this. You know, um, you talked about SEC being a disclosure-based agency and um, part of the investigations. I mean, I assume you're looking for errors errors and omissions. How is the determination, like what makes it a red flag to say this looks more like an intentional omission that we need to investigate versus an error omission? Do you have any information about that? You know, it, all of these, whether, you know, intentional or not, it, a mistake was made. Um, but then when you find there's intent, then you have scienter and you have sort of this cause. So you can raise the level there of, hey, what type of enforcement action is necessary? And and also with any type of enforcement action, we're always balancing, you know, what's good and what's bad, what gets our point across, who's you know, when you, a company has to pay a fine, that impacts shareholders. Who are the shareholders? The people who probably were impacted. So all of these, you know, things are taken into consideration. Um, but we want companies or people to say, hey, look, we made a mistake. And that's always taken into consideration when someone self-reports. Um, so that's sort of more, hey, there's an error, you know, an honest error versus an intentional one where someone's trying to deceive and mislead. And that goes to, you know, all the reports that we take in from, you know, publicly traded companies, we don't say, Hey, these are the, the commission doesn't say these are accurate, but when they're filed with us, they're supposed to be truthful. And when we find that they aren't truthful, especially in some systemic cases that I'll talk about a little bit later on, you know, that's where we've had, you know, actually even reforms and rulemaking uh, because of, of something that's happened. So my, it's a good my question here would be that we want investors, we want the consumers to be aware of this, that they need to be truthful in their filings. Um, and this is part of the education process, right? So um, is there a way that investors could alert the SEC about the, you know, potential emissions, potential fraud? Yes. In fact, there are several different ways they can do that. And we will take it any any way they come to us. Uh, part of it is we have an office of the whistleblower. And so, you know, especially for people who may work for certain companies, if they see something and they've tried to correct something internally, but there is an office of the whistleblower and we have paid out um, to the whistleblowers. Uh, I believe it's over billions of dollars at this point, but this is sort of... Um, like you see it in going through the airport with TSA, you know, see something, say something. And we want people to report because, it, like I said, if we don't have this underlying truth and trust in the system, the whole system fails. 
So we need to have that. But Office of the Whistleblower, or you can file um, a tip complaint or referral with the SEC. And, and we'll take it however you send it to us. You can call us. Um, it's usually better for us to get it in writing. You can file it online. Some people will send it in the mail anonymously. Um, some people still fax. So we'll take it however you send it. But it's always good to, to send it so it can be followed up on. Lori, we know fraud evolves with society and technology. What are some of the more common investment fraud schemes that the SEC has seen since it was created? And what is the SEC seeing today, now, 88 years later? <laughs> well, Jeremy, some things um, change and some things stay the same. So, you know, when it comes to just flat out investment fraud, um, the name of the game is still the same. We're trying to steal someone's hard earned money. And the question is, are they stealing all of it or are they just skimming some of it? And that, quite frankly, is about the only distinction between it. You know, when we look back at the blue sky laws and how they were formed, you had a rainmaker who was traveling from city to city, um, town to town uh, with with his scheme to, to raise money and others who then uh, followed. It's the same thing happens today. Now, how they do that, it's not, you know, traveling from town to town any longer. We've seen it, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, during this time period where we have new investors coming into the system. Uh, we had a lot of boiler room scams and that those were people and firms that used just you know phone banks and phone banks where they were pumping up, say, thinly traded stocks, uh, often referred to as penny stocks or micro cap stocks. And because they're so um, they're small in price, and they're thinly traded, meaning there's not a lot of um, outside shares. It doesn't take a whole lot to drive the price up. So it's a typical pump and dump scheme. Um, you might have seen uh, some of the movies that have been based on this. There's one actually called Boiler Room. Uh, you have The Wolf of Wall Street, which was based on um, an actual, actual real case, you know, where they pumped up shares, uh, their phone you know, phone banks were ringing off the hook and they were calling people and getting people to invest in these thinly traded stocks, driving the price up. And then lo and behold, they would sell out, they would dump their shares, but it would leave the retail investor then holding the bag when the share prices fell. And so we have seen, you know, pump and dumps have shown their heads again, but now we're seeing, it's not necessarily being pumped over the phone. Uh, maybe it's an online chat room. Maybe it's a bulletin board. Maybe it's uh, an electronic newsletter that people receive. So, you know, the medium has changed on how it's communicated. And even during the years, and this was in the early 2000s, um, you know, fraudsters are, are getting, they're, they're very smart. I wish they used their uh, intelligence for good and rather than bad because, you know, they, they can be very creative. And we saw this uh, at the commission. And, and we knew, you know, like I said, we take the investor complaints. So when we start getting a, you know, one phone call, then two phone calls, and now we've gotten five phone calls in the same day about the same thing, that's a problem. Because now we know hundreds of thousands of people have probably been exposed to something, and we're just hearing from this small, discreet community. So, um, and we saw this. It was stock tips being left on an answering machine. But it wasn't just like, hey, you should buy this XYZ stock. It was like, 
hey, Lori, uh, it's your friend. Um, yeah, dad and I are in town. Oh, and you hear him eating in the background. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'm eating. I'm sorry we missed seeing you while we were in town this week. You know, John wanted to uh, go to stop by the broker and, and get some more shares of XYZ Company because um, he's been told it's going to, you know, they've got some new products coming online. It's going to be going up. So anyhow, I hope next time I'm in town, I'll be able to catch up with you. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Well, the person who got that message, one, their name isn't Lori. But what was the name of that stock again that they said was going up? And these phony messages being left on answer machines, you know, all of a sudden we start tracking these stocks that we've heard about. And sure enough, someone is is actively, this is their pump and dump by leaving these phony messages on answer machines. And it made the late night television circuit because one of the cameramen on one of the shows actually brought it up. And so it's like, you just know at that point how many millions have, of calls have been made at this point and how many of these messages have been left. And people are acting on them without doing their own due diligence, without having any other information other than this phony um, call that's been left. So those are just you know, some iterations you know, with phone calls. But like I said, scam artists are smart and they follow the headlines. So. Early 2000s, um, pre-IPO investing. We just come off, you know, IPO investing was a big thing um, in the late 90s, early 2000. Now pre-IPO investing, getting involved in it even before it becomes an initial public offering. And we started to see this. And the internet at this time is still fairly new. People aren't banking online, um, but they're starting to do more on the internet. I thought one of our more creative uh, ways and efforts to try to educate people sort of in real time with some of the frauds that we were seeing was in early 2000s. Uh, we were seeing a lot of people who were investing in pre-IPOs, so pre-initial public offerings. And you may recall this is when um, we were having some government agencies receiving anthrax through the mail. And so we came up with an idea that we would launch our own pre-IPO called McWardle. It was essentially based on a biohazard alert detector device that was small enough to fit into a child's backpack, a woman's purse, or a man's suit pocket. And it was um, touted as being you know, this handheld device that Fortune 500 CEOs and officers had been using for years to protect themselves, to detect bio biohazards. And now this company was going to be going public and wanting to raise money. Well, we put out a false uh, press release to drive attention to it, which, of course, we would never do this day and age. But at the time, it was picked up by um, AP Newswire. And our website, mcwardle.com, just started buzzing off the charts because people wanted to invest in our company. Um, and so you read all this information about all the good things uh, this device was going to do and how it was going to help protect people. And then it, you got to the point where, you know, you could click here to invest. And it was amazing the response that we received because not only did, you know, thousands of people click to want to invest, but some and this is after they get the message, because if you, when you clicked, hey, do you want to invest? 
It's like if you responded to an announcement or an investment idea like this, you could be scammed. And this is brought to you by the Securities and Exchange Commission, NASA, the Federal Trade Commission, and NASD regulation, which is now known as FINRA, one of the self-regulatory organizations in this area. And even once people got that message, some people still wanted to invest in it. I remember seeing emails, hey, I think someone's hacked your site. I want to invest. And they sent bank routing numbers, social security. I mean, really showed us uh, we needed to be where people were. You know, and if they're looking for investment ideas online, we need to be there too. And, you know, try to be creative to get their information because maybe they wouldn't be the type to pick up a brochure at a conference or something. Lori, the internet has changed the way that we do investing. It's been both a, a, you know, a blessing and a curse. Can you describe how fraud has changed with the invention of the internet and where we're at today? Great question. So in the past, say, 20 years or so, like the turn of the century, uh, the internet has, has been a blessing and a curse. Um, it has made things so much easier for investors. Uh, it has really reduced barriers to entry. Uh, it's, you know, you don't have to go open up an account in person. You can download an app on your phone and be up and running, you know, just a few minutes later. Also, you know, quite frankly, the dollar amounts to invest. You don't have to invest as much money. However, the flip side of that coin is it makes it a lot easier for fraudsters also to reach out to you. And, you know, we in the complaints that we see at the SEC, um, so many times people have been solicited, you know, they're not by anyone they know, but they get emails, they get chats. Someone's reaching out to them on Facebook, on Twitter. I hear even Craigslist offers some investment advice. You know, we, I always, you know, consider the source, know with whom you're doing business. That's hard to tell on the internet. It's easy to hide. You know, it's a lot less labor intensive to send out, you know, 100,000 emails than it is to pick up the phone and have to call each person. So like the internet has been used, you know, for good and for bad. And it just is another place, though, where people need to have their guard up. And, and when do you want to have that guard up? Before you turn over your money. And so, like I said, it can be very easy, just a click of a button and you can send it off. But how do you get it back? Um, a little bit of the Hotel California effect. You know, you can check in, but you can never leave. It's always easy to put your money into something. How do you get your money back out? And that's just an area where we've seen, you know, like I said, the internet has been good. And, and think about if you had to live without it, what would you do? How would you bank? How would you manage your accounts? How would you manage your investment accounts? Um, do you even have a brick and mortar place to go to? Do they have a phone line that you can pick up the phone and call? Some firms don't. Um, so, you know, those are some things to take into consideration. And again, ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. And would you consider that a sort of a warning sign if they don't have a phone line that you can contact? You know, not necessarily a warning sign, but it, it is something to consider. And like I said, it's all great when everything's working right. But when it's not, then what? Then how do you get in touch? For my own personal comfort, I wouldn't like that. But that's me. That may, Maybe someone else's comfort level is different. Um, so it, it's just something, though, you need to know before you need to contact them how the firm is going to communicate with you. And then, but in the case of fraud, of course, you know, when they're pitching you something, you can reach them day, night, whatever. As soon as the money is gone, 
Uh, they don't know you and that telephone number is disconnected. That email account is closed. You don't see them in the same chat rooms again. So just, you know, buyer beware. Agreed. Thank you very much, Lori. Can you talk a little bit about how regulators like the SEC, NASA, FINRA, and the various state securities regulators work together? Sure. You know, hey, this is an area where it truly does take village. And like what I said earlier, you know, if you see something, say something. Because, you know, sometimes, well, who do I report it to? Report it to the SEC, report it to the state, report it, just report it. And if, you know, you want to do the shotgun approach, report it to all of us. Um, I like to always say, you know, look, the state securities regulators are the cops on the beat. This, no one's going to know your state better than your state securities regulator. Like I said, the SEC has jurisdiction across the United States. We are in 11 separate states. Well, that's not true. We've got two in California. But we are not in every state. The state securities regulator is in every state. FINRA is not in every state. So that is always a great place to start. Um, but when it's something, when it's nationwide, um, our jurisdiction is going to cover nationwide. State securities regulators also work together and cover nationwide. And we've had, you know, very large uh, enforcement actions that have led to, you know, rule changes and things like that, like the Global Research Analyst Settlement. And it included state securities regulators, the SEC, as well as um, FINRA, you know, so the self-regulatory organizations. And when it comes to investor education, I don't know about you and your budgets, but um, I'll, I'll take all the help I can get in any way to amplify the message. It's just the win-win situation. And here's something else for you know, those of you listening. If you're not in the, in the securities world and, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a retail investor. Um, when we put out an alert that is from the SEC and from NASA's membership and from FINRA, Pay attention to that. That means it's something big that we are all seeing, and we really are trying to make sure people are aware of that. Um, you know, other ways that we've been able to work together, like uh, mid two thousand time, uh, two thousand six or so, like we held the first senior summit. Now, look, that's not the first time someone ever looked at investment fraud targeting seniors, but it really did shine a spotlight on it, and it helped coordinate the exam functions that we all share, as well as enforcement functions, but then also just that general awareness and investor education. Because, you know, we know seniors especially, and I say seniors, and I get corrected all the time, older Americans, which I am proudly one, um, you know, are targeted more for investment fraud. And the reason is because, you know, it's the old Willie Sutton principle. Why did he rob banks? Because that's where the money is. You know, younger people haven't had decades worth of work and saving um, and investing behind them. And so it's not that uh, older Americans are more susceptible to investment fraud. It's just they're targeted so much more. And so raising that awareness, I think, is certainly something we can do. And we try to leverage that with the media. Um, we try to be creative in how we message things. And, and trying to just get that information out there. And this is, you know, when it comes to investment fraud, truly, it, it is a situation where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, while we return hundreds of millions of dollars on an annual basis based on enforcement actions, I'd rather have people not be, you know, have been a victim of investment fraud. Because sometimes, you know, even if there is a successful enforcement action, 
there's no money left. Or if there is, there's only pennies on the dollar. Um, not surprisingly, fraudsters are not good savers. And so, you know, by the time it's been found and stopped, uh, there may or may not be any money left. So Right. Proactive and it's, it's so important, yeah. this, the education is that power of partnership with, you know, all the state securities regulators, NASA, SEC. I remember uh, when I first started here in Washington State, we were doing tours with you folks and NASA and AERP and just really getting out there to talk to people. And one of the things that I found, you know, you say you repeated today, see something, say something. And it's also share that information with your friends mm-hmm. and the people you know to keep to keep them informed as well because that's just more eyes out there looking for things and watching for it. So, yeah, I, I agree that power partnership with all the different organizations is so key and so important, and we need consumers in, invested in that as well. Yeah, and you know, even like so, there was change in the rules where um, people can now add a trusted contact to their accounts. And this is someone who they can't trade in their account. They, they can't uh, take money out of the account, but it's someone in case, you know, your firm can't get a hold of you and um, they're having a hard time reaching you, or maybe something has changed and hold it. You've never used your ATM card before on this account, or you've never wired money overseas before where they think something's just off. It's a checks and balance. But this is something where we've all we worked together to try to raise awareness for this. And this also includes working with the firms as well, because it's just in everyone's best interest to have someone that you know and trust who can step in and say, hey, um, let's take a look. Let's pause this transaction or disbursement um, while we look into it and, and you know, talk to your trusted contact. And that's an area where, you know, and that's very recently we're in something we're still trying to get more uptake with. It's another example of, of how we can work together in a positive way, but it really does, you know, it, it, takes, it takes everyone rowing in the same direction, if you will. With all of the scams out there, what are some common warning signs investors should be watching for? And what can be done to help protect themselves from investment fraud? You know, um, Scams, common things, guaranteed returns, because when it comes to investing, there are no guarantees. Anyone who says otherwise is uh, lying to you. Um, It's just the nature of the beast. And also, like I said earlier, scam artists are smart and getting smarter and smarter, and they're wicked smart in using technology. Um, So the underlying things that get people to, to take action are going to be fear, and that may be fear of missing out or or greed to a certain extent. And, you know, we'll see it sometimes, um, even during, you know, COVID, uh, there was a group that was touting CDs that were guaranteed to pay 8%. And they were getting people to wire their money out of their brokerage accounts overseas. And lo and behold, there, there were no CDs. And these were large amounts they would only take it if it was i believe fifty thousand dollars or more and and it was like i don't know what your bank is paying and this was you know during the early part of COVID, so say uh late 2000 uh, 2020 um you know eight percent was just you know more than eight times what the national average was for a bank account and so it's like if it sounds too good to be true 
Um, it probably is. Or sometimes, as I like to say now, if it sounds too good to be true, uh, you're dealing with an amateur. Real swift on how they um, try to get people to uh, part with their money. You know, a big thing that we want people to do is, you know, verify with whom they're doing business. And you can do that by doing a background check on them. But even that message now, we've got people who are in, um, impersonating registered reps or investment advisors. And so now you need to call back to the firm to even make sure that person that you were talking to was the one who actually talked to you. So you need to independently verify as well. So um, you can verify that information by going to BrokerCheck or you can go to Investor.gov. You can go to NASA's website. It doesn't matter where you go, but put the information in, do the background check as one of the best ways to inoculate yourself against investment fraud. Yeah, so I think you you brought up the idea of, of doing the checks with NASA. Um, that would be go to nasa.org. That's N-A-S-A-A dot O-R-G. Click the contact your regulator tab located in the top right corner, and then click your jurisdiction's regulator located on the map to obtain the contact information for your regulators, and they can get that information for you. Being an informed investor means having a plan and understanding each of your investments, just like you said. It's so important that we educate ourselves, not just rely on others to educate us. And whether you're new to investing or already investing, NASA and its members provide a variety of online investor education resources for investors of all ages, uh, not just seniors. Visit nasa.org for information on how to be a wise and safe investor. Again, that's N-A-S-A-A dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lori. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you do every day to protect investors. That's all for today's episode. Please be sure to come back soon for part three of this series, where we'll dive into the wild, wild west of the future, the metaverse. Until then, from Olympia, Washington, I'm Lynn Peters. Also from Olympia, Washington, I'm Jeremy Lusheen. If you have any questions about today's podcast or would like more information about the topics discussed, please email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. That's real life regulators, all one word at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear more future episodes, please hit the subscribe button. NASA provides its information as a service to investors. It's neither a legal interpretation nor an indication of a policy position by NASA or any of its members. If you have questions concerning the meaning or application of a particular state or provincial law, rule, or regulation, please consult an attorney that specializes in securities law.